Good morning. Let me ask you, what is uh, the beginning of Christmas for you? Uh, when, when is that time of year when Christmas really kicks in? Uh, I remember uh, when, when I was growing up, we would do this thing. Um, you've probably heard of it, although it's greatly overshadowed, called Thanksgiving. Um, and uh, we would celebrate this thing called Thanksgiving. And then on Sunday, we would watch the Lions lose out their football game um, pretty much every year until more recently. Uh, we'd watch the Lions lose, and then the Sunday after Thanksgiving, uh, we would set up our Christmas tree, and that was the beginning of, of Christmas for us. We would do a fake tree, just out of curiosity, how many fake people, all right, how many real tree people, all right, we, you know, I understand we could be starting a vigorous debate here, because it, it goes back and forth, but we always did a fake tree, and um, I have found that the joy of putting up the Christmas tree year to year is greatly dependent on how you put away the decorations the year before. And if you do that the right way, I have a whole system, I can teach it to you after. Um, I I have a whole system of bundling up the lights, bundling up the branches, and uh, it's great joy the next year. If you don't do that right, it's gonna be, there's a little knot here, you hand it off, you know, just like uh, in Christmas vacation. So, um, and and that that was the beginning of, of, of Christmas for me when I was a kid. When I was in college, it became a little bit different because my college had classes uh, right up until just a few days before Christmas every year. And so right before Christmas, we would have exams and we would do exams. And I remember I'd walk out of that last class after taking my last last exam and there'd be like a smile on my face because at, at that season of life, that was the beginning of Christmas. Exams are over, it's Christmas time, and I'd usually go out and do uh, my Christmas shopping uh, at the mall and get into the spirit, visit Santa, um, all that sort of, I'm totally kidding, but I stopped doing that like a year before college. So um, these days, there's a couple things that represent the beginning of Christmas uh, to me. Obviously, putting up the Christmas tree, we do two trees at our house, a family tree uh, that has ornaments from some of our travels and stuff. And then we do a Michigan State tree at our house. Um, you can do whatever you want. Uh, but the, the other thing that kind of uh, is the beginning of Christmas for me is when Starbucks releases their cup, right? Their Christmas cup. Um, and uh, I know that I can get a peppermint mocha because it doesn't taste the same if it's not in a reddish cup. Um, and uh, the decorations here at church, didn't, didn't they do a great job on, on these, all right? That, that, that always represents... Uh, Christmas, and then just in general, seeing it like through my son's eyes, he's six years old and um, pretty amped up about the whole thing. So um, we've been talking in this series, it's called The Night Before Christmas, but really what we're talking about is the beginning of of Christmas. And we've been working our way through the Gospels, we started with Matthew, and and today we're going to talk about Mark, uh, and we're going to work in some Luke as well. But Mark talks about uh, the beginning of Christmas, or the night before Christmas, not as a what, but as a who. That Mark doesn't have any lowing cattle, Uh, he doesn't have any shepherds, he doesn't have any of that stuff. Mark starts with a who. And and the who that he starts with is a guy that you've you've heard of, uh, John the Baptist. He wasn't actually Baptist, I think he was non-denominational, but... um, no, he, he, he was called John the Baptist because he was a baptizer. That, that was kind of his whole thing. That was a preacher joke. I'm really, I'm terribly sorry. But um, that's the beginning of Mark. He, he starts with John. Now, now, John, Mark's not the only one that has the story of John, that, that all of the Gospels, and there are really very few stories, that, that there's really not very many, that the Gospel writers all share. John the Baptist is, is one of them. And so I've heard this kind of growing uh, description from preacher and pastor friends of mine that like to describe John the Baptist as the cousin Eddie of Jesus's family. 
that he's this wild-eyed, kind of crazy uh, person. And what I really don't love about that is the gospel writers think that John is important. They all include his story. Um, Jesus thought that John was pretty important. You know what Jesus said about John the Baptist one time? Jesus said about John that he is the greatest human being born, uh, born to a woman ever. So, so Jesus had this very high regard, and, and obviously Jesus is kind of his own unique case because of the way his birth came about. But he's amongst kind of more typical people, right? Um, John, John's the greatest. That, that's what Jesus said about John. Um, and Herod, I honestly believe that John was pretty important because later on in the story, he has him killed. And so I believe, despite being a little bit left of center, and John is, he doesn't run in the middle lane. John's a little bit different. All right. Despite being a little bit different, John plays a crucial role in the story of Jesus. So let me, let me show you it. We're going we're gonna to look at Mark, and I'm just going to read all this to you. It's going to take a little bit of time, but I want to show you Mark and then Luke, All right, because Luke sheds a little bit of light into this as well. Here's Mark. It's on the screen for you. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey. Right, since the, this is the not operating in the center lane, all right? And this was his message. After me comes one who is more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Right, that's what Mark says. This is the beginning for Mark. It's John. Now let me show you what Luke says. All right, this is later on in Luke. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you, out of these stones, God could raise up children for Abraham. The ax is already at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Merry Christmas. <laughs> what should we do then, the crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. Anyone who has food should do the same. Even the tax collectors came to be, came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. And then the soldiers asked, what should we do? And he replied, don't extort money. Don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were ex waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. And John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not unworthy to tie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing, winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather wheat into his barn, and he will burn up the chaff chaff with unquenchable fire, and with many other words, John extorted, exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. So, we see John's role in the Christmas story, right? You look at the terminology of these two texts, Matthew, uh, Mark and then Luke. 
that he, is, he prepares the way for the Lord. He makes straight paths for him. The crooked roads shall become straight. All mankind will see their salvation. He really is John the preparer, right? He, he's the advanced team. His job is with preaching and teaching to get people ready to receive the good news that is gonna be poured out through Jesus. And if you've ever been to a doctor, you understand this. Because when you go to see a doctor, the first person you see typically is not the doctor. You typically see the nurse. And the nurse takes your temperature. And the nurse asks what's wrong with you. And the nurse takes lots and lots of notes. Why? She's preparatory. She's getting you ready to see the doctor. And John is trying to get us ready to see our doctor. He's trying to prepare our hearts and our minds to to, to accept, see our need for, uh, and bring into our lives uh, and to have a relationship with our Savior. And this is why he preaches the message that he preaches over the next several several verses. His message is kind of discouraging. I mean, his opening line is, you brood of vipers, right? You're never going to find that on a Christmas card ever. Dear brood of viper, Merry Christmas, right? You're, you're never going to see that. And, and I've read a lot of people thinking that, man, um, John is calling them like sons of Satan. And to a certain extent, I guess he is. But as I kind of look at the translation of that, I, I think what he's saying is that we've all been influenced by Satan, who is often in the scriptures depicted as a serpent or a viper. He's saying you have been influenced by Satan. And in that way, we're all brood of vipers, Right? I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but whenever I read Genesis 3, which is the story of the first sin committed by the first man and woman, you know how the story goes, that God gives them this amazing garden. He says, you're free to eat from any tree, but you must not eat from the tree in the middle of the garden, for, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. And then Adam and Eve, they end up eating from the fruit. Do you ever have the same reaction that I do? It's like, come on. You were given one thing, one rule. And apparently that rule was not, it's don't run around naked. They were able to even do that. Right? It's like you had one rule and, and you couldn't even do that. But you know what the story of the scripture is? The story of the scripture is me too. We've all eaten the forbidden fruit. We've all done the wrong thing or said the wrong thing or taken the wrong action. You know what's true for me? And, and I won't uh, surmise to, to believe that this is true for you. What's true for me is not only do I not live up to God's standard of righteousness, you know what's true for me? I often don't live up to my own, which is significantly less than God's, by the way. Right? I often find myself saying and doing things that, that are wrong. I do this stuff all the time. It's wrong in my own eyes, let alone God's. So John's point right from the beginning is we are sinners. We, we, we are sinners. And again, you're never going to find that on a Christmas part, card, but he goes further and it gets even a little more discouraging. He says, all right, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax is ready for the root of the tree and every tree that does not produce fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And here's what he is saying in short. He says, you have sinned and unless something changes, God's gonna judge you. And again, something you're not going to find on a Christmas card. But they were tempted at that point to say, no, no, no. John, you misunderstand. God would never do that. We have Abraham as our father. And Abraham's like a get out of jail free card, right? Abraham's our great, 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 great grandfather. God would never, ever judge the children of Abraham. And John says to them, I'm telling you, out of these stones, God could raise up children for Abraham. 
right? He's not impressed with your family. He's not impressed with your heritage. He's not impressed by your nation. Here's John's point. You need a savior. You do. I need a savior. And and you can see how he's preparing them for this news, that you are a sinner and God is a judge and and you, 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 you need a savior. You need, you need someone to save you. And so John offers them baptism, but honestly, his message is even a little bit discouraging come out of that. You know what his message essentially is? His message becomes try harder. If you look at Luke's passage, verses 10 through 14, he says, the crowd says, what should we do? And he says, produce fruit. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Essentially, try harder. To one group, he says, if you've got two jackets and someone has none, give them your jacket. Be more generous. To the tax collectors, he says, don't collect more than you're required to collect. Be more kind. To the soldier, he says, don't extort money. Don't steal money. Don't accuse people falsely. Be more honest. And this is like the Dr. Phil approach to spirituality. Right? If you ever watched Dr. Phil, a little bit of a dated, but you could point to a lot of kind of TV therapists, but a lot of times they'll kind of have a guest on and the guest will kind of pour out their life of what's going on. And like a Dr. Phil type character will say, here's going to be my diagnosis is you, you need to lose some weight. And I'm going to tell you to watch what you eat and to exercise. Or they're going to say, man, anger is destroying your marriage. I'm going to tell you, don't be so angry. And then he cashes a check for like $30 million. Because this is all any human being can offer you and I. All any human being can offer us is moralism. That if your life is a wreck, try better, do better. And that's all any human being can offer. You you can see how he's preparing people for their savior. And this is how he did it. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. You can try harder, but you'll still be a sinner. And, And what you need is not me, John says. Very clearly, John says that. What you need is not me. What you need is a savior. And so listen, I know it's not like a a joy-filled, happy message, but what if I told you that the road to salvation, the road to to the Savior, the road to joy, hope, and peace starts with where John is? That this is actually the beginning of the Christmas message. That I am a sinner. I've done the wrong thing. That I deserve God's judgment. And I need help. I know it's not super happy. I know it's not super, but what if if the road to joy, hope, and peace actually starts with where John the Baptist is? What if the path to joy is actually becoming aware of our sins and our shortcomings and our need for a savior? See, can I be honest with you for a moment? Christmas lies to us just a little bit. Is it okay for me to say that? Right, we've already been kind of a downer sermon, but right, Christmas lies to us a little bit. This is the time of the year. I love Christmas movies, don't you? I love Christmas movies, and this is the, the, the time of year where almost every movie has as its major theme, you can do it. George Bailey has huge debt. He can overcome that. Rudolph has a shiny nose. He can't play in any reindeer games. He can overcome it. Clark Griswold has too much family. He can overcome it. And it's humanism. It's all about you. You can do it. You can overcome it. You can be successful. And John's message is a little bit, you know what John's message is a little bit different. You know what John's message was? You can't. This is a problem you can't overcome on your own. 
that your sin is separating you from God. Your sin is gonna lead you to judgment. You can try harder, but trying harder is not good enough. At the end of the day, you need help. At the end of the day, I need help. And this is the best preparation Jesus could have offered the people. See, man, you're a sinner, you're, you're, in, need of, you're in need of a savior. And, and, and then shortly after John comes Jesus. And Jesus says, I came to be the help that you need. So what kind of help does Jesus offer? Well, well, here's what we need. We need, I need, you need, we need forgiveness. And we see John have this interesting metaphor of Jesus' ministry. He uses a barn imagery. He, he, he talks about how Jesus is going to gather his wheat in the barn and all those outside of the barn are going to be burned up. That, that's where the chaff is going to be burned up. But all of the hay that belongs to Jesus is going to be gathered up into the barn. Now, uh, I grew up working on a farm. I am not a farmer, all right? Uh, but I grew up working on a farm. I grew up uh, baling hay through all my teenage years and I loved it, all right? And here's what I know about farming. The farmer that I worked for was a guy named Jim. And here's what I learned after many, many years of farming. Jim's hay went into Jim's barn. This guy's really smart, all right? Jim's hay went into Jim's barn. We didn't go out into the field and, and load, load the tractor up and load the trailer up. And we didn't take Jim's hay and put it in Bob's barn. Jim's hay goes into Jim's barn. So there's this imagery of those that belong to Jesus, those that have put their faith in Jesus, that he gathers them together in his barn. Jesus places us in his barn. Now, outside of the barn is a problem. Outside of the barn is where this judgment that John talked about is happening. Outside of Jesus, that's where it's happening. But those that belong to Jesus are gathered into his barn, and the barn is a place of shelter. For the hay, the barn is home, and, and the barn... This is the best example of it. The barn is where the farmer is. So what John is saying about the ministry of Jesus is that despite your sin, despite your sin, because we've established you and I, we are sinners, that despite your sin, there is a way for you to be home in the barn. There's a way for you to be with the farmer. You don't have to be outside of the barn where, where that judgment that John was talking about is happening. Despite your sin, you can be home. There's a way for you to be with the farmer. And I love that Jesus, you probably have a nativity just like I do, that, that the nativity often um, has Jesus uh, being born in a barn and I get, I've read the commentaries that it probably was a cave, but let's go with a barn for just a minute, all right? Uh, because that imagery works for this sermon, all right? Um, and most, most of our nativities are Jesus is being born in a barn. Every time you look at that, every time I look at that, I want us to remember, he came so I could be in the barn. He came so I could be with the farmer. He came so I could be safe and secure in a shelter. He, he came so I could be home. And do you agree with me? This is so much better than try harder. This is so much better than try harder because try harder always leaves people wondering, have I tried hard enough? Have I been good enough? Am I okay with God? Try harder is all about my efforts and your efforts. And I just don't want to leave the most important thing in the universe to my own efforts. And so Jesus' message was different. It wasn't try harder. Jesus' message was trust me. Put your faith in me. I'll make sure you get to the barn. I'll make sure where you, you need to be. And this is all about his efforts. And I like the most important thing in the universe being tied to his efforts instead of mine. 
because he is good enough. He is strong enough. He is perfect enough. His sacrifice is large enough. And and he invites us into a relationship with him where he will make sure we are in the barn where we can live with the father for all of eternity. We can live with the farmer for all eternity if you like that metaphor better. So Jesus offers us forgiveness. And it's better than what John or Dr. Phil or anybody else can offer you. Because what they can offer you is, I deduce that you have an anger problem. Stop being so angry, right? That's all they can offer. Jesus offers us forgiveness, but that is not all Jesus offers us because here's what I know about you because this is true for me as well. You want more than just forgiveness. Here's the other thing that we we need. We need power. We want power. You need more than forgiveness and so do I. You don't just want to be forgiven of your anger. You want to be healed of your anger, do you not? You don't just want to be forgiven of your addiction. You, want to be de- you, you don't just want to be forgiven of it. You want to be delivered from it. You don't just want to be forgiven of what's going on in your marriage, although you do. You want to be delivered from that, and Jesus offers us both. Jesus offers you forgiveness, but then John's going to go on to say, he's going to offer something I cannot offer you. He, he's going to offer you power. Here's how John says it. I baptize you with water. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So John says, I'm going to baptize you with water. And there's value in in John's baptism of repentance, of turning back to God. There's value in what John did. But he says, it's not the whole thing yet. After me is going to come one, and he's going to give you the Holy Spirit. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus was the answer to our heart's desire for both. That yes, I need to be forgiven, and I want to be forgiven, and my eternity rests on me being forgiven. But I also want power. It wasn't okay with Jesus just to to forgive us and say, okay, you're on your own. He said, let me forgive you and then I will leave you my Holy Spirit so you and I this Christmas can begin to live the life we were created to live. You can live in love and grace. You can be the husband, mother, daughter, son, worker, church member. You can be who God created you to be because of the gift that Jesus offers us. And the messages were so different John's message was produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Try harder. It's kind of on you. Jesus' message was turn to me. Put your faith in me. And I'll give you my spirit who will empower you and change you from the inside out. This is called the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And it's different than John. Remember, John said produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Jesus' message was, I'm going to give you the fruit of the Holy Spirit. That this is something Jesus grows up inside of us. It is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the things that Jesus wants to grow in us from the inside out. And the effort that you put into this thing, I call it grace-driven effort. Because it's not as though Christianity doesn't require effort Christianity does require effort, but it is effort that is driven by and empowered by Jesus. So, so, so it's not so that we can make our lives better. Our, our, our efforts are running to Jesus so that his Holy Spirit works inside of us and he ultimately brings us new life. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he offers us forgiveness and he offers us power. Forgiveness and power. And you need both and I need both. Uh, because we are, we all are sinners. 
And so we need both those things. We need forgiveness and then we need his power so that we can live a different life. So at the end of 1 Kings uh, chapter 16, we meet this man who would later become the king. Uh, His name is Ahab. And uh, let me describe to you kind of Ahab's reign at, at that time. It said, Ahab, son, son of Omri, Omri, and you just kind of think through as I'm reading this, if this is how you would like your reign to be described. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of the other kings before him. He not only considered, the trivial, uh, he not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nabar, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of the king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up in Baal, uh, at the temple of Baal, uh, an altar that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole, and here's the thing. He did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the other kings before him. Nobody wants this said about him. Nobody does that this guy was more evil and more terrible than any of the other kings that ever came before him. And Ahab ushered into Israel an age of wickedness, an age of sin, an age where everyone pretty much did whatever they wanted to do. That's 1 Kings 16. 1 Kings 17 start with these three words, uh, four words, (laughs) public school math, all right? Um, It says, now Elijah the Tishbite, Now Elijah the Tishbite. And Elijah seemingly comes out of nowhere as a prophet. Elijah's a prophet. He seemingly comes out of nowhere. The first thing that's ever said about him is now Elijah the Tishbite. All of a sudden he just kind of appears on the scene. He comes out of nowhere and Elijah begins to preach this message of repentance. That you Ahab and you Jezebel and you Israel, you are sinning and judgment is coming. Turn back to God. Change. Does this sound familiar to anybody else? And many people in Israel did. When they heard Elijah the Tishbite's uh, message, a lot of people changed. A lot of people, uh, a, a lot of people came back to God. But Ahab and his wife Jezebel, uh, they got angry, and they decided they wanted to kill Elijah. And Ahab will repent for a little bit, and he has a hard time sticking with it, in part because of Jezebel, and he's back and forth, back and forth. And let me tell you how Ahab's story ends, all right? He ends up being killed in battle, and here's the final words of his life. His chariot is washed where the prostitutes bathe, and the dogs licked up his blood. That's the final story of his life that he had been warned by Ahab, or or by Elijah, excuse me, again and again and again, he and his wife Jezebel. And finally, this moment of judgment comes, and and he'd been warned again and again. And, And Elijah's final thing is he's taken up to heaven in a whirlwind. And the story gets established that before the Messiah comes, before the our Savior comes, the 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 belief is that Elijah was going to return to earth and he was going to prepare the way. Years and years later, we meet this guy named John the Baptist and he shows up with a message of repentance that you are a sinner and God's judgment is coming and, and I find that just like way back in the Old Testament, I find like we're really offered two choices. We can allow that to make us really, really angry like Ahab did and Jezebel did or we can allow it to drive us to our Savior. Because John's message, 
that is so hard sometimes for us to hear and makes us so uncomfortable and makes us squirm in our seats. The message is meant to prepare your heart and to prepare your mind for Christmas. Because that baby lying in that manger, he was going to come and he was going to grow into an adult and he was going to offer us two things that we desperately need. He's going to offer us forgiveness and he's going to offer us power. Forgiveness so that everything that we've ever done, we're right before God because of what Jesus offers us. But new life so we don't have to keep on living that way. And both are a demonstration of God's grace and God's kindness, that he loves us enough to forgive us, but he loves us also enough to empower us to change. And he is the one in whom our hope is found. And so John, a lot of people believe that, that John was kind of coming back, that, that he was Elijah the Tishbite come back. A lot of people believe that about John. And that he came with a very similar message, but his message was different in this way. He pointed us to our Savior. He pointed us to the one who could make things right, who could forgive us and empower us and help us to change. And John came and, and he did exactly that. He made straight the way of the Lord. He prepared the way of the Lord. He prepared our hearts and our minds to receive our Savior. The question for us is, are we going to be prideful like Ahab was? Are we going to be angry like Jezebel was? Or are we going to be humble and turn to that manger and accept our Savior? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the ministry of John the Baptist. We thank you for the ways in which he has prepared our hearts and our minds, our hearts and our minds for our Savior. And it is, uh, sometimes it is a difficult message to hear from John. You know, you brood of white vipers, you know, the winning fork is ready to do its work and, you know, chaff is going to be burned up, all that stuff. We, we squirm when we hear it. But it's preparatory. It doesn't have to be our reality. In Jesus, we find our Savior, forgiveness and new life. We thank you, thank you, thank you for that grace. We thank you, thank you, thank you for that power. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Will you stand? We're going to sing a song of invitation. And uh, we'd, love to, we'd love to pray with you uh, this morning. Uh, if you're interested in learning more about what John was preparing the way for, the who that John was preparing the way for, Jesus, we'd love to begin a conversation with you about that as well as uh, we sing this invitation song.